Good afternoon again. We've got your Bibles open up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 8, but really focus in on verses 9, 10, and 11 today. We've got your Bibles. Let's begin reading verse 8. Follow along. If you don't have your Bible, it's in your bulletin. You can follow along that way. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Humans are obsessed, I think, sometimes, with knowing what heaven is like. It seems almost every year there's someone else who claims to have died and to have gone to heaven and has come back to tell us exactly what heaven is like. And If I'm honest, I'm pretty confident these people are either explaining their dreams or they're intentionally lying in order to garner attention on themselves. There is one person, though, one person that I am really convinced has been in heaven, seen heaven, and really knows what the kingdom of God is like. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of of Matthew, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what the kingdom of God is like. And his answer is unsatisfactory for the questions that people are typically asking about this. Will the streets be made of gold? What will my house look like? Are we going to have to sing the whole time? Are we going to be saddened by the knowledge of the people who aren't there? See, Jesus doesn't answer those questions. Instead, he goes to this series of of parables. And they're often vague and they're intentionally so. And so while those questions that I've just mentioned aren't answered by Christ as he explains the kingdom, Jesus does something better. He gives the answer to the question that we should be asking. In Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, Jesus tells a story that that answers the better question of what is the kingdom of God worth? The first parable says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And the second parable is along the same lines. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. What does the first man give to obtain the treasure in the field? He gives all that he has. And what does the second man give to obtain this pearl of great value? He gives everything. And the point of these stories isn't to tell you how difficult it is to obtain the kingdom of God. It's to tell you how important it is that you do obtain the kingdom of God. That you don't pursue all the worldly joys and the worldly pleasures in exchange for this one thing that is of extreme and ultimate value. That is Christ. Uh, That is the kingdom of God. That is the forgiveness of your sins. You see, nothing is more important or more valuable in the scope of eternity. And so now we begin our reading in verse 8, mostly because 
Verse 9 is the middle of a sentence, and somewhere along in my education, I was taught that it is not helpful to read only half of a sentence worth of information if you're going to understand it. But follow along as I read just verses 8 and 9 again, and then we're going to look at verse 9 and unpack it a bit. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so Paul is saying he considers everything rubbish. It's the stuff that is in perfect wooden boxes that we talked about last week. And it's rubbish because Christ is of so much more value and he wants Jesus more than anything. He then begins verse 9 with this statement to this desire to be found in him. Found in Christ. Uh, Because at the most basic level, we are either found in Adam, which is to say that we are guilty of our sin, or we are found in Christ, which is to say that our sin has been forgiven in Christ. Furthermore, being found in Jesus is about being included in Christ, in his righteousness, in his kingdom. In simple terms, it's, it's where we are at any given moment, though, right? To be found in him. If you looked for me yesterday morning, you would have found me in Panera. I would have been found in Panera. But this is also about God's protective care. When the threat of a tornado comes, we seek safety in the heart of the building. It's where we are found. We are found in basements, or we are found in in restrooms, or we are found in closets in the middle of the building. That's what it is like with Christ. We find safety, and we find refuge, and we feel safe as we are in Christ. That's what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 18.2, when he writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That refuge is what Paul is pursuing. Only he's talking about being found in Christ in the ultimate sense of when he stands before God on the last day. Which, of course, leads us to ask this introspective question, where am I tempted to be found? What other things do I look to to be found in, to find refuge? Where am I tempted to seek refuge apart from God? And how we answer that question will give us some idea of what we worship because people always seek refuge in God. Whether that God be the true God of the scriptures or an idol who can't eternally satisfy or sufficiently deliver us from anything. So then in Verse 9, as it continues with this further explanation as Paul, as he states, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul goes right to his own deficiency, his lack of righteousness. And I think sometimes we have this misconception about our own righteousness. We act as though God were a professor. We've been working all semester to get over a 70% because then we pass the class. And as we think back, we're thinking sometimes we did well, other times not so well. And as the semester comes to an end, you've come to this conclusion that somewhere on your figuring, your, your grade's somewhere around 69. And so you're going to go to this professor and you're just hoping that he's going to round you slightly up so that your grade is passing. See, our, our two misconceptions with who we are is this, that one, 70 isn't passing. Holiness has no errors, no mistakes. 
And somewhere along the way, we've misread the syllabus, and you, you don't realize that the reality is you need a hundred to be with God in eternity. That's holiness. Second thing, your works are not a 69. You are a zero. Yes, your pastor just called you a zero. But it's for a good reason. See, remember, we're talking about this, this version of you before you knew Christ. And many of you have known Christ for, from such a young age that you have no knowledge of this version of yourself. You, you know this, this version of you BC before Christ. It's like many of you don't know what it was like before smartphones existed. See, movies didn't always play on your phone. In fact, to find out what movies were playing down at the theater, you had to call this thing called movie phone. And you just sit there as it would read off the names of movies and times for you. Some of you are shaking your head. I didn't know you were that old. And, and that was the way you'd find out what movies were are. If you wanted to call a store in, in town, you had to use something called the, the yellow pages. It's exactly what it sounds like, a humongous book with yellow pages. And that's how you'd get their phone number. If, you're, if your car broke down while you were driving somewhere, you couldn't call for help. You'd either waited for some stranger to help you, which could be creepy, or you got out and walked, which was also creepy. There was a cord on the phone. Um, someone suggested not long ago that, that we tie a rope to our cell phone so we don't lose it. And it made me think, we used to have that. And so if you wanted to talk in privacy, you had to drag this phone into a closet. There was another line, which meant a sibling or a parent could pick up and listen to you anyway. And some really old people, no offense, because some of you are going to have this, had actually had these lines that they shared with their neighbors. Meaning you're talking on the phone, and your neighbor picks up the phone. They're also listening to the same conversation. And really, those things don't shock me much. And they don't shock you much, for a lot of you, because... You don't know what it was like before cell phones or smartphones. I appreciate them more because I grew up without them, but I don't appreciate TV because that's, that's really always existed as far as I'm concerned in my, in my view of the world. But for my dad, TV are like magic. You know, he'll like watch it, and he still is asking this question at times, how do the pictures go through the air? And I'm like, Dad, you already know this. It's magic. And he thinks our, our microwave is magic. And he thinks that copies that aren't only in purple ink for some reason is a miracle of some sort. And this all sounds like this crazy rabbit trail, but I want to help you understand what life before Christ was like or would have been like, whether you remember it or not. And this will help you understand this profound statement that God is revealing to us in this text. So before you knew Christ, even your good works were zero. So what you're really asking this professor to do is to curve your absolute zero to 100. That's a bigger deal. It's a a curve from nothing to perfection. And there is not a professor on the planet who would not be fired for doing so. Now, to be fair, he or she would also be fired if they did the work for you, or if their son did the work for you and turned it in in your name. I thought I should point that out because all of these dead ends you'll find yourself. And I want you to understand that this illustration falls short at that point of seeing what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And that's okay because, first of all, no one can fire God. He's God. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And so despite what some professors might believe, they're not God. And this illustration breaks down at that point for that reason and a few other ones. 
The illustration of the professor and the student really is just to show you the dilemma we're in, and I hope that you get that, to make clear that there is nothing righteous in us before we know Christ, and perfect righteousness the standard by which we are being held to. And this is true of every one of us. Romans 3.10 makes clear, saying, None is righteous, no, not one. And again, this is a problem because only the righteous are saved. What this means is that we need a righteousness that is, that is alien, a righteousness that is foreign, that is external, apart from us. And, and the text reveals that righteousness comes through faith in Christ. This is talking about the gospel. Jesus takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Imputed is this big, strange word that simply means to be applied from somewhere else. You impute ketchup onto your hamburger, meaning it comes out of a bottle. It's from somewhere else. We are imputed Christ's perfect obedience as we trust in him by faith. We call that justification. Justification is another big word that means Jesus is the grounds by which we are counted righteous or declared righteous by God. And counted righteous is seen even as far back as Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham obeys God and he believes God. And we're told that it is counted as righteousness, his belief. It's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the key to understanding Christianity is this. We don't perform righteousness. We simply receive righteousness. This is one of those things that makes Christianity unique from all other religions in the world. See, in all other religions of the world, people are given an instruction manual and told how to get righteous. Just follow these rules. In Christianity, Jesus did the work for you. It comes already assembled. All other religions in the world are like Pinterest. On Pinterest, it's here's a picture of the end result, and here's some instructions. Good luck. That's what we see in most religions in the world. Christianity, though, is like extreme house makeover. God pays the price. God does the work. God does it all from beginning to end. And, and we come to understand this, that God is the one who justifies. Justification, though, I want you to understand, is a, a one-time event. Once you are truly justified, you cannot become unjustified. This is why the, the call to Christ is, isn't a call to clean up and be good. It's a call to trust in Jesus. Yes, you will sin, but if you're truly trusting in Jesus, you will also confess that sin and, and rest in the forgiveness which Christ has accomplished for us. And this is why in our worship every single week, we have this corporate confession of sin every single week. We have this opportunity for us to come to God and confess it. Because we know there is forgiveness found in Christ. Because we know that those whom God has redeemed respond to their sin with confession. Verse 10 then moves from justification to sanctification. I'm using a lot of big words today. Concepts are more important than the words. So don't worry about remembering them. But sanctification literally means to set apart. And the scripture that means as Christians we're different than the world. God has set us apart from the world, and we are becoming more like our Savior in actual holiness. Uh, there are ups, there are downs, there are setbacks, but in the general movement is, is towards Christ's likeness. As 
we follow him. It's our learning to obey God's word more and more. It's learning to love God more and more. It's learning to love others more and more and learning to fight against our sin and in our lives more and more. So let me remind you again, sanctification, though, does not create faith in Christ. Sanctification flows from our having received genuine faith in Christ. And so verse 9 finishes up talking about the righteousness that comes by faith. And, and then verse 10 continues by saying, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants us, wants himself to be sure of, of two things in this first part of verse 10 that he's speaking of. He, he wants to know him and him is talking about Jesus Christ. And he wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, let's look at those in, in order here in a moment. Uh, J.I. Packer points out that this knowing Jesus is a primary function of our existence. He says, once you become aware that your main business here in life is to know Christ, then most of life's problems fall into place. See, you want to know what to put effort into? Put it into knowing Christ. Not earning salvation, nothing else. Put it into knowing Christ. I think parents often wonder, what do we pass on to our children? Love for a sports team, or love for reading, or for Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings, or music, or a healthy lifestyle, or education, or so many other things. And all those things are good. There is no shame in desiring your children to value books, or to value music, or to be a fan of a, a sports team, or Except the Yankees, that's just bad parenting. But really, more important than all those things is a love for Jesus Christ. That's what you want to pass on to your children. Knowing Jesus is of greater value than everything else. That's what we see in the great commandment that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. In verse 37, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Notice that it doesn't say some of your heart, most of your heart. It says all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This goes to our absolute core. And so our prayer for our children and our priority for our children and the priority for ourselves and for those we minister to and alongside is that we know God, that we love God more than anything else in the world. And we know Christ, uh, we do. We come to know Christ through the Word of God, and we come to know Him through prayer. And we grow to love Him when we gather like this in worship, acknowledging not only that He is God, but He is our God, our God. He is above everything else in our life. And so then the second thing that Paul says he wants to know is the power of the resurrection. This is one of those obscure statements we don't think much about, but when Jesus is resurrected, it's because God has accepted this perfect sacrifice. It's confirmation of the first and most significant benefit that we receive from Jesus' resurrection. That's the forgiveness of our sin. But that's not all we receive. Jesus' resurrection shows that Jesus defeated the power of sin. That's what Romans 6, 9-11 through 11 is talking about when it says... We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Because of the cross and because of the resurrection, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Now, if I'm honest, some days I'm just alive. Not really having focus or purpose. I'm just alive. Other days, you know, I understand this. I'm dead to sin. I think just don't sin. But, but those days lack joy in Christ. It's the days that I'm truly alive to God that are most fulfilling. I mean, when I enjoy the word of God, when I feel energized to ask people about their life and energized to serve with joy and, and not some sense of ought to. When I'm bold to speak the gospel and, and truth unto others because my hope is in Christ, really in Christ. And my hope for you today is that you would be alive to God, to live with eternal purpose, knowing that we don't have to change the world. God will do that, but we can be used to show the love of God to both friends and strangers alike. What we learn in our text is that the power of God really is at work in us. You believe that. I mean, we say it, but the power of God really is at work in us. The, The power that raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection power, that power is in you. Paul in his life was relying on that same resurrection power that we are relying on. Power to reconcile marriages, power to to break pornography addiction, the power to use words to build others up, to open our mouths and, and witness to Christ, power to love others beyond this natural ability that we so often fail at. The power to live as ambassadors of Christ. That's the power of the resurrection. What I mean is we must live every day with this knowledge that the tomb is empty and all that that means for our lives. To that end, Paul states that his desire is to share in the sufferings of Christ. This is not because sufferings are fun. No one wakes up and thinks, I can't wait to see how I suffer today. But he does this because there's often pain that comes from following Christ. That's a reality. Remember, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was despised by the people that he went to the cross for, many of them. And Paul, in a much lesser way, understands that pain. He's in prison because of the gospel. That's why, that one reason. And he's experienced rejection from people, many who have been his friends in the past. And yet he wants the suffering of Jesus, and and here's why. Paul's basically saying, if suffering brings me closer to knowing Jesus, then I want that even if it's painful. When we are faithful witnesses to Christ, because the result of us living in a fallen world, there's going to be suffering for us as well. Not always, not in every situation, but be prepared for sufferings to come with faithfulness. In Acts 5, the disciples were brought before this Jewish council for proclaiming the gospel, and, and the council's not sure what to do with them, but they tell them to stop, and, and the disciples respond that, you know, we must obey God and not man, and they're not liking that answer so much. And so eventually they are beaten, and they are told to shut their mouths and stop talking about Jesus. And in Acts 5.41, we read the response that says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. That's not likely to happen to you in the United States in 2014. But you might be rejected. You might find the gospel you proclaim makes people angry. Now, 
be careful that it's the gospel and not you being a jerk that really is what's offending them. If it's you being a jerk, you'll need to repent. And if it's the gospel, though, if it's the gospel that's offending people, be prepared to suffer. And, and more than that, consider it joy that you get to suffer, as Christ has suffered. Now in verse 11, we get a quick look at this idea of glorification. What, what is our own future resurrection? Verse 11 reads that, By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus will raise our dead bodies back to life. It's a hard thing for us to understand. Every time I go through the cemetery, I imagine these bodies will really come back to life, and it sounds crazy to me. Um, That's what the Word teaches. That's what Jesus is going to do. And it's an amazing thing, because no matter what happens to your body, God is able to raise it back to life. I don't know what the details of our glorified lives are going to be, or our glorified bodies. I I don't know if you're going to be incredibly attractive I expect you will. I don't know that. Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to fly. It's on my list of things I hope for in glorified bodies, but I don't know. Uh, What I do know is that Jesus will be there. I I know that we won't struggle with sin anymore. I know there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. No, you're not going to be bored, even though you tend to imagine it that way sometimes. Uh, And so when Paul says here that he wants to attain the resurrection by any means possible, it's really not this fear that he won't attain the resurrection. It's not a statement towards something he must do to obtain the resurrection or earn the resurrection, but it's a statement about value again. It's that feeling that I would give anything for it, and yet it comes freely to us in the gospel. I want to finish up with a story for you. It was told to me, Years ago, and I don't know if it's true, but it's like a modern parable of sort about the kingdom of God, about the forgiveness that we receive in Christ, that we have in Christ. It goes like this. Many years ago, there was a little boy on Liberty Island. He's just staring up in, in awe at the Statue of Liberty, just amazed by it. There's an older gentleman who, who volunteered there, and he saw the boy staring up at it, uh, and he went and he, he stood beside this boy. And he asked the boy, do you like it? And the boy responded, I, I love it. An older man asked him, would you like to own it? And the boy responded, yes, I would love to own it. How much is it? The man asked him, how much do you have? The little boy dug into his pockets and he pulled three cents out of his pocket. Uh, and he held it up to the man in the palm of his hand saying, this is everything I have. The man looked at the boy and he told him, that's, that's nowhere close to what it would cost. And, and really, the statue is not for sale. And the boy, the boy looked to the ground disappointed. And, the, and then the man spoke once more and he said, you can't afford it. And, and it's not for sale, but if you're an American citizen, then it already belongs to you. It already is yours. That's the kingdom of God. That's the righteousness of Christ. That's the power of the resurrection. We come to God with these few cents and we realize that's nothing. And it's not for sale anyway. But if we're united with Christ by faith, then we do possess the kingdom of God. It's, it's already ours. We do possess the righteousness of Christ. We do possess the power of the resurrection. If we are truly in Christ through faith, then we're not earning the love of God. We already have it. It's already ours.